Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome to Life Out Loud, where we make stories and stories make us. Thank you for tuning in. Tonight, our episode entitled At Home will feature three new authors whose stories all somehow touch upon the theme of home, what it means to be home and what it means to be far from home, and an exploration of the forms that the concept of home can take. I'm Karen, one of your co-hosts tonight. And I'm Karina. We're both back again to uh, bring you the feels. Back, 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 back. For our first story tonight, we have Mashawn Taylor, whose story we were introduced to at Travelogue last month, where she performed it in front of a live audience. A writer, student, and activist, Mashawn tells us that she was born and raised in an unremarkable cornfield. She has been published in college journals from the Midwest, those which most people use to prop up houseplants. She is new to Brooklyn, is a student at John Jay, and you can often find her sitting by herself on the Q train, falling in love. So let's listen to Amuse, of course, and also by me, Sean Serrells. In the absence of starlight, you start looking for the shine in everything. Mindy Nadefi. The car wouldn't move. He punched the gear shift and nothing. A wall of light was barreling toward us by way of four lanes of shrieking traffic. He looked at me, eyes wide as headlights. I can't go. I said nothing, my mind blank. My head turned slowly to the right, toward the bright wail of oncoming vehicles. A car was in our lane, heading straight into my door. My ribs, I thought. It was maybe 20 feet away. I could see the person driving. A woman, angry. Her mouth was long and contorted into obscenity, mercilessly silenced by layers of window and feet of air all quickly disappearing. She had skin like mine. Maybe she is Egyptian too. She was 15 feet away, her strangerness becoming less strange with every inch that evaporated between our cars. Ten feet. I could see she had nice eyes. My chest tightened, small flecks of light flashing in the brown of her left eye. Our car lurched forward into the next lane. He swung the wheel around, his whole body bent, eyes and face and knuckles rushed white. We sped away. We were fine. We weren't dead. It was my first minutes in Brooklyn, and we were still alive. I've lived the majority of my life without access to a vehicle. Cars have always scared me, which is why I'm 25 and have never had a driver's license. Having spent months deliberating the pros and cons of moving to New York City, the New York City, I hadn't thought about not having a car. I had never had one. I only assumed it would be the same as always. Those first few moments in Brooklyn, I realized it was completely different. It was all going to be completely different. The city would soon become a beast more foreign than I had anticipated. The cars drove faster and with less law. The cars and people in them were more expensive and with a non-existent threshold for tourist ignorance. The streets were wider, the buildings obviously taller and more cocky in their glass and steel than anything in the handful of Midwestern cities I'd grown up in. The honking was a constant one-note soundtrack. Back home, people honked if they were seconds from your ending you, or if someone was curbside and holding a sign that said honk if you love blank. Here, people honked for everything. Honk, go faster. 
Honk, get out of this lane. Honk, don't be an asshole. Honk, pigeons. Honk, my wife is mad at me. Honk, the Yankees. I've spent my whole life on buses and small moments in taxis. I rode the L in Chicago for a year while dating a guy who couldn't know how to fall in love with me, but would later drive me halfway across the country and have his car stall out in an intersection in downtown Brooklyn in front of the Barclays Center on a Saturday night. How could transportation be that vastly different in New York? The city may be one endless hum of light and siren, but I refuse to believe that New York City could really be that different from the cities I'd called home. I was wrong. The Q train came every seven minutes, which was great considering buses back home came every half hour, if you were lucky, and even greater considering my seeming inability to be on time. I've been early to anything only once. My own birth which happened for a myriad of reasons, none of them, of course, my doing, and is maybe, more honestly, a way to say I was born months early and spent weeks in an incubator waiting for my ears to form. Having, like most people, an insatiable gnawing to figure out our whys and hows, I ended up reading a lot about premature birth. I learned that preemies, as we are affectionately called, are often heavier in the gut because of the calorie-dense food they pump into you while you're in the incubator, and more anxious because of genetically soaking up the mother's disposition and stress often being the culprit of early delivery. Some may also have difficulty forming trustful relationships due to weeks or months spent inside the waxy plastic walls of an incubator, while most newborns in their first days are cradled by the thick forearms of family. And that's who I was my first morning standing on the subway platform, paunch-bellied, anxious, distrustful, staring down the long tunnel waiting to see light. My eyes sparked as the train approached. My heart flew up in my chest at the sheer velocity of a train that is yet to hit its brakes and then dropped quickly to the trash-strewn cement of the subway platform as the train slowed and through its windows I saw that each car was one solid mass of person. I realized my effortless rides into the city and getting to pick a window seat facing the Statue of Liberty as we slid over the bridge were now over, and all at once reality came to a stuttered halt in front of me. The metallic doors swung open and I crammed my body as closely and desperately to strangers as I have only done at dance clubs in the sweaty arch of bar time. Living in New York City wasn't going to be waking up slowly in the fat of a summer afternoon and casually taking an empty train to Coney Island and not having to spend money at the pier because eager friends rushed to buy you overpriced welcome beers. Living in New York quickly became standing room only on a train so thick with strangers' hot morning breath that you writhe in a quiet nausea. Living in New York meant getting off at the wrong stop, but not realizing until you've already left the station and poked your dumb, beautiful head out onto the street and somehow always into a cloud of cigarette smoke, and in order to get where you're going, you have to pay again to re-enter the tunnel. Living in New York meant throwing wide Midwestern smiles at every stranger and learning quickly how to fold that tradition and hide it under your smallest tooth. Living in New York meant being all at once entirely visible to nine million people and also completely see-through. One morning, in an epiphany that I either learned to love this mess or risk spending my morning commutes crying, I turned my focus to the sliver of window I could see between bodies between suit jacket and backpack and stroller and interlocked fists with diamonds the size of my hunger was the sparkle of the East River. This, I would soon learn, was my favorite part. The crawl over the Manhattan Bridge, the scatter of light that happens whenever glass and water are built close to one another. This is why you're here. 
Beyond the static of smells in the train and beyond the anxiety mounting in my blood, there was the broad metal shoulder of the financial district. And beyond that, Chinatown. And beyond that, Little Italy. And beyond that, Greenwich and Tribeca. And beyond that, all the neighborhoods so far undiscovered by my body, raised in empty cornfields and mosquito-bit front porches. And all of it, all of it, has its head tilted toward the Statue of Liberty, standing valiantly in a river of sequins and trash. Everything that surrounds me is where they make movies, why they write books, and what has held and broken the most beautiful poets. I didn't move here to go to the beach. If that were what I had wanted, I could have moved to Palm Springs. This is what I wanted. Stop blaming reality for not being a daydream. I wanted New York, didn't I? I wanted the packed trains and the sweltering platforms and the men who carelessly spread their body over two and a half seats so that I can't sit down despite my heavy bags and waning patience for other people's bullshit. I didn't move here to drink cheap beers and sleep in. If I want the Empire State Building, then I want the dog shit on the sidewalk beneath it. If I want Beyonce and Broadway and Central Park, then I want everything to smell like a gradient of burnt piss and rotted lettuce. If I want the bars where Lawrence Ferlinghetti sat, then I want high rent and shit under my boot. If I want the museums and the skyline and the Q train, then I want to learn how to eat two meals a day on five bucks. If I want to meet my favorite poet in a bar in the Bowery, then I also want to be so lonely that time is nothing but a blade for my doubts to break themselves on. I looked at the man standing in front of me and forgot to see him as the object blocking the window. His hair was thinning, and I saw the shifty way he escaped my eye contact. I saw his expensive shoes, his well-tailored insecurity. I saw the woman across from him anxiously scanning the train, checking her phone repeatedly even though none of us had service this far underground. Next to her, a tall woman sat in ripped black everything and long black hair, her eyes burning holes through everything in front of her. Me, the old woman seated to my left, the aluminum holding us all together. We're all a little miserable. We're all a little too broke to be positive at seven in the morning while a strange man spends the 40-minute commute staring directly into the cleavage you've purposefully tried to camouflage. The New York City is a muse, of course, and also a neon-lit Petri dish where you flail because of everything it is, and regardless of everything it is, you find reasons and tactics to stay. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. <laughs> Every time I hear Michonne read this piece the way that only Michonne can read it, I get all up in my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Just all up in them. Ah, ah. Thank you. <laughs> the, the first time that I heard this at Travelogue, I demanded <laughs> to Madrazo that we put this in the podcast. And I'm sure that she was already thinking of it anyway, but I was like, no, you don't understand. I she's been this. advocating for you yes. for quite some time. Like, she's yes. ready to be your agent if need be. For <laughs> real. It's, it, it, uh, we expect big things from you, apparently, oh, my dear. <laughs> oh, my um. God. That's so sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, questions. But, but seriously, the way in which you read and the way in which you make us feel everything and articulate everything so that we are in that moment with you is so incredible. Mm-hmm. And the way that you touch on little things so that we get the essence of it. And uh, I'm it's done like a true storyteller. Thank and you. And I think that that's that's why 
Karen feels so much <laughs> and um, is so willing to, to put her neck on the line to get you on here. And we're so glad that you did. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Thank you so much for coming here today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for liking the story. Thank you for giving Yeah, thank you for having feels out the I mean, story. If you want to do, we can do like a thank you go round and round about thank you for writing it. Thank you for New York. But I think that I I think that in in this room right now, we feel nothing but gratitude for one another and it's amazing. Yes. I agree. Seriously. Okay. So getting into the actual interview portion of this <laughs> instead of the We Love Michon Fest. <laughs> so, which we do, by the way. Yes. Oh my goodness, I could go on forever. But I won't. Okay, so your piece starts off immediately with a bang, or almost like a false bang because there is no actual impact. But we're giving the sense like it could happen at any second um, because it begins with you almost getting into a car accident. And of all things, <laughs> of all things, it's something very... Um, you know, draws your attention immediately to start like that. And I read this part as the city almost crushing you in a sense, where, but not. (laughs) When being new to the city at times, you can almost feel like, oh my goodness, it's too much. Like, oh, I'm literally about to be squashed by the city. And this was one of your first impressions of it. So have you ever felt as though you were this close to it being too much? Or felt as though you were about to get, for lack of a better word, hit in the dick by the city. Yeah. I mean, I think every day. I mean, you know, yes. Okay, so the the full story of that almost car accident is that uh, we got really, really lost and almost really dead. And um, But then, then we, like, went under a tunnel for a really long time. And when we came out, no joke, there were fireworks. Oh. And um, we had been playing Taylor Swift because you do that sometimes. <laughs> you need <laughs> to. to New York. Well, yeah. <laughs> we were doing that whole like thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like making our own movie montage or whatever. But so, yeah, almost dead and then come out of the dark and there is fireworks and everything's oh. a celebration. So that that is very much metaphorically like what the city is like at any given day for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I constantly feel uh, almost hit in the dick. Yeah, <laughs> but then at the end of it, you're like, "Oh, fireworks!" Yeah, yeah. there is some but kind of fireworks. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, like yesterday, it was a terrible, terrible day, and then like three people at Stop and Shop were like actual angels, and like we're like just like just so sweet and like genuine connection, and mm-hmm. like I think that's fireworks. something that's so interesting about New York that even myself mm-hmm. as a as a New Yorker for a majority of my life, like I've I've had the privilege to live in a- other areas, but I'm born and raised in New York, yeah, yeah. from Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm not from Brooklyn, but eh. <laughs> but um, you know, you start the day in the worst mood most mm-hmm. of the time because you're commuting and you're packed, and and you mentioned that in your story. But it's amazing that in a city filled with so many people, that bad doesn't have to be the only thing you encounter. Yes, and yeah. you're given so many opportunities to enjoy the beauty. Um, within other people and the beauty around you yeah that's so real like i feel like the the one thing about new york is that like if you have a bad encounter if you just like stay out for like 10 minutes mm-hmm. longer something, something beautiful will happen yes, yeah. like Absolutely. i remember during finals and i last uh semester it was my first semester in new york and like fucking depressed broke <laughs> like exhausted mm. um 
just, just like really, really low. And then I'd be here all day and like wouldn't see the sky. And then I would purposely like wait here for a little while. And then I would walk to Columbus and mm-hmm. I would just like wait until somebody would be playing music mm-hmm. because it was just like, Fuck, thank you. Like this isn't in the Midwest. Like this doesn't happen. Yeah. So like just waiting for that thing that New York has to remind me that like being here uh, is not always almost car accidents emotionally which is mentally there's <laughs> always fireworks. yeah i yeah. love that. waiting for that that um interaction yeah which is interesting because I, I find so many people um you know they they move to the city and the first thing that they say is i just feel nothing but loneliness yeah and it's like it's it's incredible to to stop and and think that in a city filled with like hundreds of thousands of millions of people you know you could feel so utterly alone yeah and just you telling us that story about you going out and just waiting for that one bit of interaction it's bound to happen yeah it's bound to happen mm -hmm. and i actually remember like i'm such a i'm outing my all my terrible music taste no um, that's fine so we i think we all have horrible music if you want you we can start a list for you <laughs> well so like i remember i went down and you know like waiting for the train and this dude was playing um was it hey there delilah oh no but that is my song for my best friend anyway oh i'm gonna breeze over that um, <laughs> uh he was playing that uh ed sheeran song oh, fucking love song where they like dance in the music video <laughs> Thinking out loud. <laughs> Thinking out go. loud. Yeah, you got it from it. my like haphazard yeah. wailing hums. <laughs> he was playing that and then he went directly into Alicia Keys. Nice. And it was just like, oh, I was just like, you're perfect. Thank you. Thank you, New York <laughs> gods of mercy. <laughs> I needed this right now. So yeah. I, I need to start, you know, getting in touch with the New York gods of mercy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, sounds like, that sounds like a really cool gag, you guys. We need to discuss this afterwards. <laughs> afterwards. Terrible cover Don't band. Don't steal the idea. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you're welcome to, but give us the credit. Like, damn. <laughs> um, so moving forward, you know, we've had all this discussion, this discussion about New York. And like I said, you know, I've moved around a lot and I always found myself somehow back in New York. Yeah. And um, Karen, you've been a New Yorker for really long time i've been a long islander so a fake new yorker no (laughs) you you know you're still kind of new york and Mm. please you know don't start emailing us and telling us why that's not true guys (laughs) listeners you can keep you can keep that to yourself long island we're very inclusive here and etc etc but yeah i've lived here for now two years yeah see so but what you know the essence is that we're all new yorkers at the end of the day you come here you stay here you're in new york so I'm really interested um, in when you first began to want New York. Uh, when did this like fever, this like need for this specific city? Because you mentioned in your piece, uh, why not Palm Springs? You know, like you, you could you could choose that. You could go to the beach. You could, you know, enjoy your time, enjoy your day. My mom lives in, you know, Miami. And I'm like, mm. and she's like, oh, Destiny, you have to come down here so that, you know, um, we can hang out in Miami Beach and do that. Yeah. But something draws us here. Yeah. What does that for you? Mm. What did that for you? Yeah. I guess. Um, so like as a child, I mean, I think like as a very young child, it's always like New York. You know, like mm-hmm. this city up on a pedestal. And um, and actually, before I chose New York, I was thinking about moving to out to California mm. and going to school out there because my best friend lives out there. And it's 
California. I yeah. mean, it's the Pacific and it's the Redwoods and it's warm. And, and it's California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and But it felt too easy. And I felt like this was the scariest decision that I could make. And if I made this one, then all other decisions from here on out would seem like cake. And they have. So... That's true. New York is not for the weak of heart. Yes, absolutely. It is. You know, it's not a. It's it's not. I mean, in my opinion, yeah. it's, I've never been able. I've seen people be able to grow a rough skin around a soft heart um, with New York, but I very. I feel like very few people can come here and move and just make it happen for themselves. You know, I would say that. I think I listened to that for a really long time, which mm-hmm. is why I never thought that I could move here. I didn't think I was a person who could do New York because, um, like, I am the softest hearted person in the world. Like, I cry multiple times a day um, so on a Karen. good day. Okay. There's I know. literal evidence in this room <laughs> that people who have seen me cry multiple times today. Karen and I are kindred in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so I and I think that on really hard days, I'm like, oh, you know, if you weren't if you weren't some kind of tough, you would have left by now. But I think that that's kind of a lie. Mm. I, I think mostly mm. I'm a really soft heart who's a, uh, re, uh, really afraid of failure. Mm. Um, but could you argue that it's because you're afraid of that failure that it pushes you to be a tough cookie and to work hard? I mean, yeah, I, I, it, I just definitely. I, don't, I, I think that you're the sweetest soul from what I can see you standing before me now and us chatting. Yeah. Um, but I don't I, I don't get this like s- soft sort of like, oh, you can walk all over me and everything will be OK. Like, I don't I feel yeah. like I don't know if this was you when you first came. And I guess that's what we're looking back on now. But you seem like a pretty tough cookie who can handle your shit. It's hilarious. So, so like, and, and I mean, even Sean is like, oh. that's what I take. I take this person who is able to recognize that, you know, yeah, like there's some soft um, heartedness. There's some kindness within me and that's OK. But you're able to see the beauty and the. Um, yeah, you're able to see the beauty within the good and the bad of New York. Yes. And that's and. I just I think that that's amazing. So I'd have to think that that, too, is a reflection of your personality. Well, yeah, I think that's completely. Ne- I mean, like, I, I think that's necessary to mm-hmm. stay here yeah. and um, also just my life, like just b- being a person who like has depression and like has anxiety, like mm-hmm. um, waking up every day and like it is a necessity to find the beautiful thing, yeah. the uh, magical thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and yeah, 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 I'm sorry, but that I think that's something that is so wonderful to keep as a part of you to not let a, a place like new york that is very tough and is very like rough change your softness oh yeah Definitely. No, no. when i first like when i was young as well i was like i want to live in new york and my parents were kind of like we kind of know who you are we know that you're one who cries multiple times a day yeah so are you really tough enough for some place like new york like out of genuine concern and i realized that you know Maybe it doesn't take necessarily toughness to be here. Yeah. You can kind of be like a soft flower and still see the beauty that this place brings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. And still stay so true to you and still cry multiple times a day, but still be in this rugged area and still be yourself. Well, and, and I think that's kind of what I was trying to say was that like, why is... I'm going to cry multiple times a day and be damned <laughs> if my crying is not going to be perceived as strength. Yeah. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Absolutely. Like, and like also, I think that there's <laughs> there's something about like um 
Okay, so the uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> no filters here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever. Yes, remember oh that. Goodness, no. Since I've been here, New York has utterly surprised me with its kindness, with its generosity. Yes. yes. And and then there are those people who you meet on the train or who you meet like yelling into their phone on the street, and you can tell that they've bought into that narrative that you have to be a certain kind of person to live here. Yeah. And I think that that narrative of like, of like having to be tough and like kind of having to be an ass and not having time for other people, mm. um, it, it isn't good for people. It's not yeah. good for people here, and it's not good for people who want to live in New York but think that they aren't a certain kind of person. Like Because, Definitely. you know, I don't know. I just... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all here for yeah. vulnerability, and, and then that is strange. Absolutely, mm-hmm. things like having to develop resting bitch face so that no one like messes with you. To an extent, mm-hmm. that's true, but also you can. We were just having this conversation, <laughs> Karina, that you can kind of get away with having some sort of softness in this place, even here of all yeah, places. Yeah. You can still totally do that. And, and I forget what. But I was that's what make this place. That's what makes New York uh, the most beautiful melting pot. Yes. That we have all these kinds of people. Yes. And so, and you know, and and I guess I I'm going to take back what I said earlier about needing to develop this little like tough skin around your soft heart. Like maybe necessarily you don't because we need people like that here. Yeah. So that's what makes New York so beautiful. <laughs> that we have the dicks, we have these jerks, but we also have these people who are so incredibly kind, who are so incredibly beautiful and i keep using this word because that's essentially what it is beauty is you know in the eye of the beholder and we can continue um to to say that and debate it all day long but that's that's what makes new york new york and you you we get those people who are kind and we get those people who are good and we get people like you (laughs) yeah well and i i think that um like i'm not afraid of of new york like taking any of my open vulnerability away like if anything like when new york gets harder on those hard days like it forces me to find a way to be open even more open absolutely and developing like that muscle so Mm -hmm. um i make it a point um and and karen's actually gone out with me before so she knows like and she's commented on this when i go to like whole foods uh, down in columbus and i go and i speak with someone i'm like oh hey like how are you how's your day going today thank you so much you know Mm -hmm. and people have this misconception that new yorkers are assholes and i mean we have our day like don't catch us on a bad side kind of thing and we can if we need to be yeah but like we're not all jerks Mm -hmm. i have so many tourists um at my job who come to me and they're like wow you guys are actually nice and, and I, the majority of people here are fucking in just so kind, mm-hmm. yeah. so kind. Like this is so willing to help you out. Yeah, getting off uh, at my platform, at, like when I get home, like I first time in my life, like if there is a woman wa- uh, walking a stroller, a stranger will just pick up the front of her stroller and yeah, help yeah. her carry that up the subway stairs. Like never saw that in my life. Never expected it. Yeah. So kind. Yeah, it's the generosity of others. Um, and without asking. Yeah. Without her having to ask anybody for help. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, there is something about, like, we, if you didn't choose this madness to live here, like, you understand it well enough that, like, we are all in this together. Yeah. You know, and, like, there's no reason you can't have a resting bitch face and then, like, just a severely open heart behind it. You know? Yes. <laughs> like, that's perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So. Oh. Yeah, so, so... So obviously this piece goes heavily into who you are and how that makes you interact with the city. And the irony of your characteristic lateness but early arrival into the world as a premature baby and how you relate to all the things that 
statistically come statistically come with being premature um, in image anxiety and distrust of people and I'm curious as to are these struggles something you realized in New York City and were perhaps amplified by the city or, or that became known to you in the city or ones that you had before you moved to New York City Oh, definitely before. Like, <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I spent the like first two years before I moved here in therapy. So like, yeah, I hashed all that out. You know, like not never, never done hashing. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I've Absolutely. been very. It's been. I, uh, I told myself I'd stay quiet when I wasn't sure what to say. Um, no, it's okay. It's okay. Safe as place you can. <laughs> um. I think like as a child I was an only child for a very long time and we moved a lot so I was like very alone a lot and mm -hmm. um something that comes with that is just like thinking all the time and so I was like always looking into what am I feeling why am I feeling that I think that's also it's also obviously why I'm a writer mm -hmm. um so been I've had a lot of issues for a long time <laughs> but, okay. yeah I've been working we all have issues oh, oh yeah lots we all are yeah and like that's beautiful right like yeah, there's absolutely. nothing wrong with that again it, it speaks to the melting pot of new york yeah it adds and everyone's got issues here. here yeah <laughs> everyone's got issues here. and yeah. if you don't you're lying <laughs> <laughs> and that's met completely with affection because it's it's just how people are it's just what makes us all human and stuff for sure yeah so keeping within the theme of what this episode entails which is at home um i have to ask where do you consider home is it the midwest or new york and if you can't decide in what ways would the midwest be closer in your heart than the new york yeah i definitely consider the must the midwest home i uh, i moved around a lot uh so Basically, the entire state of Indiana and the entire state of Wisconsin, I consider home. Mm. Uh, but I, to a certain extent, like I, I have to consider New York home, or it would be really hard to get up here every morning. You know, to like not allow myself to uh, symbolically put those roots down and consider this some kind of home. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm from. I was born in Indianapolis. I nice. spent a long time in Madison, Wisconsin, and then a few years out in the country. So there are a lot of places that I consider home. New York being, or Brooklyn being the newest place. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so nice. I feel like what's important with the concept of home is that maybe it, sometimes it isn't necessarily um, a place, but maybe the people that are in, within that place or who you feel that you are within those places um, in relation to people. Do you feel like that at all? You know, it's before I moved to New York, I actually didn't really think that I had a home because I had moved. Mm -hmm. I had just ping ponged all around uh, Wisconsin and, and Indiana. And I was like, none of this is home, you know, none of it. And and then I had to leave. I went really far away. And then I'm like, oh, the whole thing's home. You know, <laughs> it's all home. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the, the thing with New York is I, I don't know anybody. You know, mm -hmm. I yeah. it, it can't be the people thing because otherwise New York would not be home. Um, so what draws your connection here? What's what keeps you here? 
Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. And no, I ask, no, I ask no, because, yeah. because even for me, curious. for someone who's lived in New York all the time, this is a question I ask myself every day I get on the train. I'm like, yeah. why am I still here? Like, <laughs> right? I mean, I get it. I get why people move and drop everything to come to New York because it's this glamorous place. But, but like, why am I still here? And I, I find it fascinating and trying to understand why you're here. Yeah, I, I'm here. I'm not done trying here yet. I'm not done. <laughs> I'm not. It is still hard every single day. And I think it's going to be hard every single day. But like, I don't have a degree yet. So why would I leave? You know, um, I don't really feel like getting bested by a city. Um, I want I I think so. My one of my my best friends uh, quit their job at a bank. Um, they were on a manager track and they are now like hiking the Appalachian Trail and they had to do that to like figure their stuff out and like they chose a trail and I chose a really expensive city and I'm just like <laughs> not done figuring my stuff out so it's amazing yeah I think once once New York stops teaching me something every day uh, I will I'll leave I'll look for something else it's amazing so I kind of hope New York never never stops teaching you stuff. Just yes. stay with so, us forever. Yes, stay with us forever. So, Michonne, we'd like to thank you so much for sharing your piece, coming here. We're going to have another little like kumbaya session of thanking, but that's okay because it's yeah. you and we want to keep you here as long as possible. For real. Hon- honestly, thank you. Like, it's been so good to just like be here and just mm-hmm. like talk to you one on one, especially about this piece that we all. Just like, oh, I love so much. And it said all the things about New York that New Yorkers have wanted to say but are unable to give that freshness to it. So thank you for finding a new way, my dear. Yes. Thank you. Our next story is by Lilia Russo, though it will be read by another reader in her place. Lilia is originally from a small village in Moldova in the former USSR. She moved to the U.S. at age 20. She is currently a student at John Jay in the Law and Society Department, a volunteer at Ellis Island's Museum of Immigration, and a multilingual translator and interpreter for several immigration firms. She is fluent in Romanian, Russian, Moldovan, English, Basic Spanish, and Ukrainian. She writes blogs, short stories, and articles. And the story you'll hear tonight was actually featured at New World Stages last month, where it was selected for a public reading series entitled Travelogue, produced by Dramatic Adventure Theater. So let's listen to Lilia's piece. I did not miss my country, and my country missed me even less. Nevertheless, I had to return one more time to Moldova. My grandmother had already postponed her last day of life several times, and I knew that I had to see her before it was too late. Going back would not be pretty. After all, I was still a mixed blood and viewed as a mongrel by Moldovans, a threat to nationalist society with my Russian sympathies. I knew that the government would be interested in talking to me about my having written numbers of ardent letters undermining its leadership and I knew that those interviews would not be friendly. I also knew that my status as a protected asylee, finally living safely in the United States, was in grave danger if I returned. When granted this status, I was reminded that the U.S. government would only protect me on U.S. soil. 
if I were to go to Moldova for any stupid reason, I would lose the privilege of protection. See, only carefully selected people are granted asylum in the U.S., and I was lucky to be one of them. After years of background checks, meticulously investigated evidence reviewed by an expert of Moldovan conditions and psychological evaluations which confirmed my PTSD, I, along with the hard work of my immigration attorney, won my case. I had been told very clearly what was expected of me and that I should not, under any circumstances, go back. The U.S. government is not able to protect you if you return to... These words rang like fire alarms in my head. I knew they couldn't protect me. No one could. My life would soon be in great danger again, I knew, but I had to see her, had to see my grandmother one last time. As I clicked to buy my round-trip ticket to Moldova with a layover in Russia, I prayed to every god I'd ever heard of that I would actually be able to use the return portion. If I was seized and detained while in Moldova, a real possibility, I might never ever again return to the U.S., I knew. I had to take precautions. For any chance of exit, I would have to take very special precautions. For example, I had to avoid going directly through the Moldovan airport because I was certain that my name would sit squarely on the infamous red flag list, the word on which the word nadorida, or unwelcome, is boldly stamped. Moldova, sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine, allowed entrance via two other options— I could travel through Romania, for which I did not have a visa, or through Ukraine, which was itself currently volatile and war-torn. My only option was Ukraine. It was better, I knew, to travel through war than it was my own home country's airport. I am waiting at the airport now for my flight. I am numb and sick, but I am thinking of my grandma, of her soft and gentle touch and her kind and loving heart, the way she used to cook my favorite meals for me. She made the best rabbit stew with traditional mamaliga, a cornmush similar to Italian polenta. My thoughts of her food are interrupted by the news I scroll through on my phone absently. Today, July 17, 2014, Malaysian Airways Flight MH17, a Bing 777 loaded with almost 300 passengers and crews, was on a routine flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur when it was struck by a surface-to-air missile over eastern Ukraine. Everyone aboard was killed, I read. I am a zombie boarding this plane, one which is headed straight for where 300 innocent civilians were just struck from the air. I already feel dead, unfeeling. I have opted to fly and travel through this war zone where civilians were just shot from the sky simply because my own country views me as a traitor. This war zone is the safer choice. If I fall into the hands of the Moldovan authorities, I risk getting detained. If I travel through Ukraine, I risk my life. I weigh options once more, and I still choose Ukraine. I try to read, but my book seems more focused on me than I am on it. It seemed that my mother could not find a better time or place to bring me into this world. I remember my third or fourth winter in the former Soviet Union, I was dressed in a little blue faux fur coat with a fluffy hood that I inherited from my older cousin. With my warm red scarf bundled up around my neck and matching hat perched atop my head, I must have looked like a little smurf. The gray mittens my grandmother had knitted for me jutted out from my coat sleeves, looking like tiny mice. They jumped up and down as I walked. My grandmother, 
always ten steps ahead, had sewn the mittens onto rubber strings inside my coat. She had to be sure my little mice accompanied me everywhere I went. There was no way I could replace them or even try to make excuses if they were lost. My grandmother knew me well, knew I might lose what we couldn't afford to lose. She'd knitted those mittens for me, but the unprocessed wool pinched and scratched my skin, and they smelled like sheepskin, like faint blood and dairy, a scent I despised. I did not know then what a privilege it was to have mittens. I did not know then that a few years later my grandmother would unknit those mittens and reuse the wool to knit a new pair, one a few sizes bigger and later an even bigger pair after that. It seemed that she always had a plan. She was wise. She was always ten steps ahead. I suppose she had to be. That winter's day in the USSR, my mother and I stood in a never-ending line at the grocery store, waiting for our turn to buy a toy. It was a day that I had been anticipating. I couldn't wait to finally have a Red Riding Hood doll. I had dreamed of the ways I would brush her soft blonde hair and share my little secrets and dreams with her. My mother had taken me with her so I could hold a place in one line while she stood in another. This would increase our chances of getting bread, salt, soap, and maybe even this toy. There were no other children waiting to get toys, and that meant I was the luckiest child, I thought. I was overjoyed, certain that stores did not sell toys to adults who did not bring children with them. The people in that long and tormenting line were gray, as unfriendly and as harsh as my little mittens. The sky was painted in that same shade of gray. It seemed that my washed-out blue coat was the most colorful thing around. That day, my grandmother had stuck two hot potatoes in my pockets, and I held them tightly in my little hands. She knew it was too cold for me to be out, but she also knew I couldn't be stopped from tagging along. I would withstand any kind of weather to get my new Red Riding Hood doll. So when people told me I'd turn into an icicle if I did not go home, I brushed them off. I had my grandma's mittens, her warm potatoes, and I was getting my doll. When my mother returned from her line, matches, salt, and soap in hand, I looked at her with the hope that she would wave to me with my doll, but instead her olive-green eyes looked sad. There were no dolls left, she said, so I could not buy you one. There were no dolls at the end of my line either, I soon found out. I heard from behind the counter, all dolls are sold out, words that have remained like an indelible footprint in my memory. When our turn came, my mother brought two loaves of bread and then boldly, she asked for a third. It's for two separate households, she explained, trying to convince the woman to give her more bread than the allowed amount. The cashier, overweight and angry, yelled that two was the limit, and my mother did not insist. I looked at every netted bag that came out of that store. Not one person emerged with a doll. Who had bought them all? Outside the shop, my mother tore chunks of bread from the fresh loaf and gave me a generous piece. I held it with two hands, greedily devouring it as fat, salty tears rolled down my cheeks and soaked into the crust. It was the best bread I'd ever tasted. My mother always told me that if I ate bread, I would grow up faster. She said the same thing about afternoon naps. There was a whole set of things I had to do in order to grow, I guess. I listened because I guess I was looking forward to adulthood. If this was what my childhood was going to be, then... Maybe I didn't want to be a child. 
I continued going with my mother to the store every Sunday, hoping that one day it would be my lucky day. But it never was. A doll was never inside any of the bags filled with bread, soap, salt, and cooking oil that we carried home with us. I learned not to ask anymore, and I certainly did not cry. Later on, on my fifth birthday, the great day finally arrived. My mother came home excited and placed in my hands a doll that looked exactly like the one I saw in my dreams every night, and a stuffed brown bear, too, both of which every child in my neighborhood had acquired a long time before me. I never played with that doll or the bear. I kept them, like treasures, behind glass in the china cabinet, like trophies awarded for my patience, my endurance. But I was happy to finally get them, even just to look at them, and to be no worse off than any of the other children on my block. It was only later that I would come to understand that I really was worse off than them. My father was not Moldovan, and that closed many doors for me. Because he was Russian, and in turn, I was not pure Moldovan, we were deemed mongrels, Russian occupants. We were enemies. I didn't understand why. Moldova was my home. I knew no other loyalties. I couldn't help that the blood that surged through my veins half belonged to an ethnicity from a country less than 2,000 miles away. Over the years, I worked extra hard to be accepted, but I never was. When I was denied admittance to the state university because of my ethnic background, my father took me to a private university instead. He tried his best to make up for the traitor blood he had cursed me with. While my mother was abroad in Europe making money to pay for my education, my grandmother and father became my whole support. My grandmother knitting on her veranda, surrounded by a forest of continually, shamelessly blooming red geraniums, would peer at me through her glasses and give me only one piece of advice. Lilia, be wise, she would say in Russian. I would look at her wrinkles, her gray hair, and I would think to myself, also in Russian, I wish I was wise. When I finally did enroll in that private school, I was vivid. I was blunt. I was no longer a crying girl. I was, like my grandmother had instructed me, finally becoming wise. I wanted more than stuffed bears or dolls now. I wanted equality, and I would not wait online anymore, only to never get it. In the very first few months of my student years, I would join the Liberal Democratic Party. But by the time I was arrested for the third time by Moldovan police and everything that followed from there, I realized that my life was in danger. I had to flee. On the day I left the land of my birth, my heart was heavy, and I felt deeply hurt. I said goodbye to my friends, to my parents, and to my grandmother. I promised to return when things changed a little, but I was lying. I was almost certain I would not return. I was exhausted from fighting for my place in this rotten society. I was tired of proving I was not a Russian occupant, a Russian pig. I was overfilled with hate, and I deeply, wholeheartedly despised the communists who were responsible for my suffering, those who were responsible for separating me from my country, from my grandmother. They had deprived me of my rights, my freedom, my peace, and now my family, too. That day was the first time I ever saw my father cry. And it was also the last time I saw him alive.
I land safely in Russia and go immediately to the train station to begin the 12-hour train journey to Moldova through the war-torn Ukraine. The train seems more ancient than my 92-year-old grandmother, and it certainly seems to move slower. Several times I jump before faking a relaxed smile when asked to present my documents at the borders. When I finally make it home, I feel like a stranger. Everyone asks me questions about New York, my life as a student in the U.S., my personal life, over and over and over. After only 20 times, I just want to hide away somewhere where no one will find me, something I've become used to now as an asylee. I had to visit my grandmother right away. She cannot see me, and neither can she believe that I've really come. Nothing in her face shows any sign of happiness, but she still looks kind and wise. She always looked wise, my grandmother. And I wonder then, is she proud of me? Proud of me for leaving, for standing up for myself, for fighting? I wonder if she is happy that she taught me to be strong, to always be ten steps ahead, like her, to be wise. She touches my head and winds her bony fingers through my hair until she reaches the ends. She smiles a little. She always liked that I kept my hair long. I turn my face away from her while she continues touching me. I do not want her to touch my face, that which is washed in a stream of tears. I do not want her to know how guilty I feel. How guilty I feel for hating it here. I am at home for a week, but it feels like an eternity. The nights are stinking. They are hot, humid, no need for wool these days. And our house is invaded by flies. Like the thoughts that invade my head, they keep me awake. I find myself remembering that rumors spread quickly in this place. My heart beats fast and I startle at any knock on the door, any sound inside, fearful that authorities might have gotten wind that I am here, that they will call for me and then... And on the day before my departure, this call comes. I am issued a summons from the police, dropped directly into my hands. Someone has told, I know. But suddenly, I'm not scared anymore. I feel nothing. That the police have been informed of my presence leaves me somehow feeling greatly honored. I am wise now, I know. My grandmother's red geranium still sits comfortably planted in its pot on the same windowsill where I left it. It shows off its huge, fluffy, bloody flowers. The colors of communism, I think, as I stare at it knowing that I will never be back at this house again, will never see my grandmother again, and will never get a summons again. I am happy that I came, but I know that it was not the wise choice, and I will never be able to choose it again. I also know my grandmother will understand. I say goodbye to her that day. I thank her in my heart for all she has given me, all that she has taught me to be wise always 10 steps ahead. It's time now, I know. Time for me to get ahead again. I have to leave before my summons. And so I do, quickly and quietly. My grandmother will die on Thanksgiving Day that following fall. And shortly after Christmas, her geraniums go on to die too. Oh my goodness. This, every time we get to experience this piece, Lilia, it completely throws me. 
each and every time. Yeah. I mean, we have Karen over here making faces. It's <laughs> we, you know, it's real so if Karen feelings. makes faces. <laughs> so many feelings. We have Lilia here in the studio. So thank you so much, Lilia, for coming here and for letting us experience this piece again. Thank you. I feel honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I have to tell you, um, I had the uh, honor of being in the class actually we both did mm-hmm. um when lilia first shared this piece and uh, each and every time i can't help but say that this is one of my favorite pieces that i think i've ever had the pleasure of reading um it's so moving it's it's this story about you visiting moldova um and to be honest before encountering your story i didn't think i had ever known about the republic of moldova yeah. or that it even existed uh, so, of course, being the person that I am, I had to do some research and I found some interesting facts like that Moldova didn't gain independence from the Soviet Union until August 27th, 1991, which makes it a relatively young country. Like it's not even 25 years old. <laughs> um, and as I continued uh, to do some of this, you know, like fund fact hunting Um, I came to learn that Moldova is considered to be the poorest country in Europe, which took me by surprise because you stand before me and I see someone so rich in experience and with such a kind soul. It's difficult for me to make that connection that you and your family experienced such poverty and overcame it. And and nonetheless, again, like you're going to hear me say this a lot, listeners. It's an incredible story. It really is. And I think that juxtaposition of seeing you and not necessarily being able to know that a story of this magnitude, yeah, Mm -hmm. and incredible happened to you. That's the importance of creative nonfiction. And that's why we do creative nonfiction. (laughs) Sorry, but just that's the importance of creative nonfiction and why we do creative nonfiction is to really show these stories that would otherwise not be heard at all and yeah and you do just that Mm -hmm. so uh let's get start with the interrogation shall we (laughs) no i'm just kidding this is this (laughs) is a very don't be nervous this is extremely you know we're good people we don't (laughs) bite not bite unless it's chocolate because i'll eat that up right away (laughs) yes um (laughs) um so let's start at the beginning of your story it's so interesting that You chose to start this piece with the lines, I did not miss my country, and my country missed me even less. I was personally so taken by your use of language um, in this sentence. In the very first two sentences, you you choose to um, kick off this piece. And I found myself asking, how could someone talk about home this way? You chose to start your story uh, with your second and final trip back to Moldova, correct? Yes. And some people can relate with the feeling of being an outsider in in their own homes, but to feel like one within your home country, it must have been very difficult. It was really difficult, yes. It's a strange feeling, but it's it's hard. I can imagine. And I, I think that we feel that in your piece. But even more so... You exhibit so much bravery and strength and, and determination 
when explaining the lengths that you go through to go back to a place that didn't want you and in turn you really didn't want anything to do with it either were you at all frustrated in having to go home were you angry and having to go through so much stress like traveling through the ukraine um to get to this place that you despised or i I can't help but also wonder looking back was it worth it because your grandmother was was your home i was yeah i had experienced all all of those feelings Mm -hmm. i was frustrated i was angry i was sad um but it was worth it i had to see my grandma one more time last Mm -hmm. time it's amazing what we'll do for people like that for people that impact our lives so much and that's really so beautiful no, it really is. I have a, a really close relationship. I, we spoke about this, actually, um, with my grandmother. Very, very close-knit ties. And I know that um, in every sense of the word, you know, she's my second mother. And um, if, you know, she called me to come to her or if I knew that um, her final days were approaching, I, I would go through, I would move mountains to get there. So... I really felt that in your piece. I was really close with my grandma. She was my, my second mom. When my mom went abroad, I mentioned that in my piece. Mm-hmm. When my mom had to grow, go abroad, I, I stayed with my grandma, and she took care of me, and we're really, really close oh. to each other. It's beautiful. She's always with that you. Is so beautiful. <laughs> Definitely. She is. Absolutely. So... So going back into this topic of home that this episode is centered around, let's try to talk about the process into getting into your new home that is now the United States. So often people refer to the process of seeking asylum in the United States and migrating to the United States as the U.S. accepting you into this country. And there's a moment in your story where you reference being granted status of asylum But I think it's important to note that you choose the United States and made the conscious decision to adopt this country. Not necessarily it adopting you, but you grace the U.S. with your presence. (laughs) (laughs) Most certainly. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. I can't. I just love Lilia. Okay. (laughs) So I'm curious to know what life has been like for you since adopting the U.S. Um, Has it been a really huge adjustment? Or has your, has your life changed in comparison to the life you were wise enough to leave behind? So, after hearing my story, you guys got a sense what my life was like when I was back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the United States, I can kind of, my life, I can kind of divide my life here in two parts. Before I was granted asylum and after I, I was granted asylum. Wow. Uh, it was really difficult in the beginning um, I had to struggle a lot. I had to work really hard. Mm-hmm. I had my dad was sick at the time. Uh, he had cancer, so I had to work to gain money to take care of my immigration status. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I had to send money back home for to treat for treatment for my dad's hospital bills and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, it was difficult. I had to work two, three times, uh, three jobs sometimes. 13, 14 hours a day. Um, no days off. Like I would have maybe one or two days off in a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was difficult because I had to prove sometimes that I belong here and I want to be here and I want to be to do good things in this country. Yes. Wow. I didn't come for bad reasons or I didn't come yeah. to take someone's job. Exactly. <sighs> or preaching to the choir. Keep going. 
but I worked hard and I got what I wanted to get and my life changed. Mm. Like right after I got asylum, my immigration lawyer, he offered me to work for his firm. Wow. Right now I work as a translator and I help other asylum seekers. That's amazing. That's so amazing. My personal life changed. Many things changed. Mm. I I found uh, a nice guy. Um, I have a nice fiance. He's my support. He's my motivation. Mm. So... I had the pleasure of seeing the two of you together recently, yes, and yes, I just was too. like, I'm going to use Karen's word. I felt the feels. <laughs> you guys are For beautiful, real? and I, I can't express to you, not, and I'm sorry if I cut you off, but I can't express to you how much admiration I I have, and I'm sure that most of the people in, in this room right now that are very teary-eyed hearing your story um, feel when you explain the trials and tribulations you had to go through to be the Lilia that's standing before us right now. And and it's incredible. Thank you. And again, we're so honored to have you here. And we're so glad that you chose to adopt the United States. Thank you. I'm feeling so many feelings. But yeah, especially like as an immigrant myself and, you Mm. know, I am the daughter of immigrants and um, my brother is also an immigrant and a lot of my family is, too. I don't know. I just get such an, an emotional, as as everyone mm-hmm. in this room can see, reaction to um, hearing stories like that and hearing of that struggle. And, you know, to have people sometimes say that it's so easy to get here and it's so easy to stay here and find your place here. Abs- yeah, absolutely. And it really isn't. It's completely not easy. Mm-hmm. But when you work as hard as Lilia does and work as hard as someone like my family does, it it pays off in this way so i just i I just i'm just like so grateful i don't know to have you here and yeah thank you i'm happy to be here (laughs) (laughs) so one of the questions i had for you today which you just finished touching upon um was regarding your father and you know there's so many heartbreaking moments in your story for example um and you decide to flee Moldova for the first time and that's when you you mention your father um you say and I quote uh it was the first time I had ever seen my father cry and it was also the last time I saw him alive if you don't mind me asking um did you regret fleeing Moldova after learning of your father's passing or um I mean now that we know because I, I was not privy to the information that um, he passed for can- um, he had passed from cancer, and I'm sorry. Um, Thank you. My condolences to you. Um, but was like, did, were you happy in the end? I mean, and and not in the sense that like he passed or anything like that, but that you were able to provide for his medical care and keep him um, going for as long as it could, or. I mean, I'm just I'm just interested in your thoughts and, and whether or not him passing and you not being there um, was another motivation to you seeing your grandmother, um, like that driving force. My mother and I, we worked really hard to keep him alive. Mm-hmm. We saved money. We paid the medical bills. He had three surgeries before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we were not able to do that. So he passed before I was able to see him one more time. Sorry. Um, I spoke with him before he passed away. Um, I called him on the phone and I told him that I will come back if he wants me to. Mm. He told me that he didn't have anything to offer to me. He built a house for me Mm -hmm. and 
the house will be there when I come home. Mm-hmm. But I had to take care of my future, of my life, and it would be better for me if I, I would stay safe where mm-hmm. I am. And it's just like a father to put the the better of his, the betterment of his child before his needs, and that's amazing. So going back to your piece and the writing, the beautiful writing, um, the doll in your piece does not only symbolize a trophy for finally receiving the thing that everyone else had, but I feel as if it also represents the inequality of your country. Um, just for being a mix of ethnicities and your motivation to to equal your rights with the rights of others. In your piece, you say, I kept them like treasures behind the glass in the china cabinet. Like trophies awarded for my patience and endurance. But I was happy to finally get them, even just to look at them, and to be no worse off than any other child on my block. I can't help but feel like at five years old, you already knew you were different somehow. Back to the doll, did you always keep it in your china cabinet as you grew older to motivate yourself to attempt to achieve your goal to equality? And if so, how hard was it to motivate yourself to do that, to keep going with this? And also, how difficult was the process of trying to achieve that goal in Moldova, of all places? So I always kept the doll in the cabinet, and it's still there. Someday, maybe my mom can send it me and I can pass it to my children I don't know I don't know what I'm gonna do with it but it's still there <laughs> um, it is um, it is my trophy it's uh, it, it's a symbol for me mm. it shows me how um, that things uh, if you work for something you can in the end you can have it Absolutely. you can you can get what you want in the end but you have to work hard for it you have to struggle and it's possible to do However, in Moldova, it was not possible. Mm. It was impossible to to get anything or to get anywhere. Mm. Um, so Soviet Union, as you mentioned, collapsed in 1991. I was born in 1986. Wow. Uh, the flashback I'm having with the doll, it was about that age when like, I was four or five years old and mm. Soviet Union collapsed. So the hatred those nationalistic feelings were like the worst at that time. Mm. Moldovans, they fought like, like they were fighting for their independence and they wanted to keep their country clean. They wanted to keep like to have only Moldovans, mm. only Christians. Mm. They didn't accept anyone who was Russian. They didn't want to hear any, any other culture, any, anything. Mm. So I was viewed, as I mentioned in my story, as an occupant. Mm. I wasn't wanted there. Mm. They didn't want to, to have anything to do with me. Yeah. But I motivated myself to keep going. And my biggest motivation probably was my dad, who was Russian mm-hmm. or Ukrainian. Yeah. He spoke with people, with Moldovan people in his language. He never spoke Moldovan, wow. but he was an educated person. He was an engineer and people respected him for that. So he motivated me to keep going, to get an education. And hopefully someday I will be respected and accepted in that society. Mm. But it didn't happen. But I think it takes a very strong person to be able to realize that when to continue and when to be like, okay, I'm going to make my way somewhere else. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. Which, again, speaks to your strength and Mm -hmm. your bravery Mm -hmm. throughout this entire piece. Impossibility in Moldova. You didn't take that as impossibility everywhere. 
exactly. Which is something yes. that is so important and just it's just, just so important. Really, yeah, it's just so important. <laughs> <laughs> I just look forward to that. This is your effect on me. So, lastly, because we've literally felt every feel in this room <laughs> in the last, you know, time that it's taken us to not only listen to your piece, but um, dissect it as much as possible, as much time as we're allotted. I mean, we mm-hmm. could do a whole episode on this, but oh, I mean, real, I would be unfair to a lot of other authors. Can we just like talk for two hours? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm going to move on to our last question that I have for you. And that being, you do an incredible job of touching upon various important themes like family and discrimination and overcoming poverty and most of all overcoming fear and you so beautifully leave us with this essence that just because you are born somewhere doesn't make that your home Mm -hmm. so what do you want readers to take away from this piece you as an author what is what is this goal this motivation I guess one of the most important things I would suggest for my readers to take is to appreciate what they have and to make the most of what they have. Because, I mean, they're struggling in the world and people don't always know that struggle. Yeah. So other people, other readers, if they feel that there's something else they can take from my story, I don't know. It's like the relationship in the family to support each other, family members to keep pushing them, to keep motivating them, to not let them down. Maybe that's something someone needs. Uh, also, the discrimination. I guess I give um, like a, a view on discrimination in Moldova and post-Soviet countries. I don't know many people know, if they know or if they don't know about those kind of problems. Mm-hmm. So anyone can tell, take whatever they feel like taking from my story. I feel like I had something to offer for everyone, every every one of my readers. <laughs> and we thank you for putting that into the world and allowing us to to take whatever we need from it. It means thank so you. much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lilia. Thanks. Our last story is entitled The French Leave by Lashana Craig. Lashana is a recent graduate of John Jay College. Before John Jay, she got her associates at FIT for fashion design. Before she graduated in December 2015, she made it a goal to take one last class with Professor Kristen Madrazo, our mother hen here at Life Out Loud, who coincidentally was teaching creative nonfiction in fall of 2015. Lashana knew nothing of the subject, but with the help of her professor and her classmates, she learned the art as the semester progressed. One of the byproducts she created from the class was the literary journalism piece, The French Leave, where she wrote about her boo's unexpected and extended trip to France. She hopes to continue writing in this genre. Lashana enjoys poetry slams, ice cream cake where chocolate sprinkles are a must, learning new languages, fashion illustration, and driving on a nice day. Let's take a listen to The French Leave. I first met him in a small Starbucks in Nesconset, Long Island. Before that, though, I knew his name and that he, like me, also had a history of bad luck finding normal people online to consider dating or to even chat with. So to be honest, I didn't know much about him. But he seemed nice. 
And since I'm kind of a sucker for guys who seem nice, I agreed to meet him on New Year's Day. That day, he told me he didn't spend all of his childhood in the United States. And at first, I asked, Oh, so you studied abroad or something? He shook his head and simply said that he had spent some time in France. Did he think that would sound exotic or something? Ran through my mind at the time. I shrugged it off. He seemed purposely vague, and so I figured it wasn't really any of my business. Within days, he became my boyfriend. At his house, rapid conversations in French between him and his younger sister always left me confused. I felt awkwardly isolated. I only know intermediate Spanish. But mostly, it made me wonder why his French was so effortless. How long had he spent in France? And for what? Why didn't he ever talk about it? I finally asked, Really, Christian, why did you even go to France? Obviously, you had to be there long enough to pick up the language. Not that I was complaining about your fluency and perfect accent, I thought to myself. He gazed into my irises, deliberation lingered in his. And was that pain? My mom wanted a change, so we went to France, was all he said. Over time, I'd hear and I'd understand why these questions were hard to answer. Uh. At age nine, both of Christian's grandparents passed within a short time frame. His family, and most notably his single mother, was suddenly all alone. His mom announced that she wanted a change of scenery after the death of her parents. But this desire manifested quite literally when on a usual Friday afternoon, Christian arrived home from school to find his mother waving three passports like a deck of winning go fish cards. We're going on vacation to France, she announced to her now 12-year-old son. He blinked once and then his long eyelashes fluttered frantically. His body was filled with surprise. We are what? he asked. We're going on a trip, she exclaimed, still beaming at the passports. She hadn't been this animated for a while, Christian thought, happy she was feeling better. One for me, one for your sister, and one for you, she squealed. We're going to be leaving Massachusetts this week. Bring what's most important to you. Aren't you excited? Duh. They arrived. His mother financed her stay at a striking hotel in Perpignan with her inheritance funds, and Christian and his sister, Hannah, happily ran rampant within the boundaries of their posh resort for the first week. Who wouldn't enjoy sunshine-bleached skies and the all-pastries-all-the-time French way of eating? The siblings familiarized themselves with the beach and habitually brought their overblown floaters with them everywhere they went, crumbs dotting their face from whatever type of croissant they just swallowed. The sea twinkled. The food was sweet. Things hadn't felt good at home for so long. Here they did. It felt like a place where nothing could go wrong. It felt like all sadness had been left behind at home. Trois. The amount of days the family spent at the resort reached the double digits. The floaters began decreasing in value, and Christian and his sister began to drag them to the beach like they were unwanted accessories. Sometimes they didn't even feel like going to the beach. And how many hazelnut-smeared crepes could one take, really? Quatre. A few weeks passed, and Christian saw that his mom was still having fun. Her blonde hair glistened, but he felt dull. He missed his friends at home. He even daydreamed about school, the school where he had been marked as missing.
He hadn't heard the dismissal bell go bring in a while, and he was starting to forget what it even sounded like. He remembered that his friend Emma had given him a pen that said, Give me some of your tots. He really liked that pen, he thought, as tears welled behind his eyes. He wished he hadn't left it in the United States. He wondered about his best friend, who shared not only the same passion for Pokemon, but also the same name. The other Christian would always throw a devious smirk at him prior to challenging him to a Pokemon match. Hey Christian, want a duel? You know you don't have a chance against my level 100 Charizard. Christian would remember the days he'd be momentarily flustered as he recollected the difficulties he had getting his favorite Pokemon, Blastoise, to level up from level 99. But he wasn't about to let his friend know that. His demeanor changed, and it matched the emotion portrayed on his friend's countenance. He would always take the bait. You're on, Christian would remember saying. I wanted to hurry up and go home, he told me. In his head, he'd practice ways he'd challenge his Pokemon rival as soon as he got back home. Sink. It finally came to the point where neither Christian nor Hana could tolerate staying at the resort any longer. Feelings of isolation had progressed to those of sheer boredom. And eventually, the boredom hatched into an overwhelming desire to return to the United States. One day, he approached his mother and finally asked, Mom, when are we going home? His mother looked at him with a serious expression. This is going to be... A long vacation, Christian, she said calmly. We're going to be here for a while. But what about going home? He pleaded, his words getting shriller and more quickly paced. He hoped for an exact return date, something she wouldn't or couldn't offer. Cease. After about six weeks at the hotel and a looming bill to show for it, Christian's mother moved them to a French village named Poussin. It is small and quaint, with a population of about 3,000 people. The village was built in 400 AD, and the entire town is a national monument. It cannot be modified or rebuilt. By law, everything must stay the same there. Maybe that was comforting somehow. It was in Poussin that they resided in a stone 15th century chateau. It was divided into apartments and they shared the same stone wall, stone floor, and wooden ceiling. It was evident that every part of this village infrastructure was very, very old. The fort had single-pane windows and no heat, which was brutal during the winter. The interior of the apartment would reach negative 5 degrees Celsius, which Americans identify as 32 degrees Fahrenheit. By this point, at age 12, Christian was seemingly living the dream. After all, many young students can only dream of taking a French leave from school. He hadn't been in over six months. His mom simply said he didn't have to go right now. His identity was not yet on the French radar. He wasn't registered at a school yet, so there was no chance of his getting caught not going. Although it wasn't his home, Christian loved the village. It became his own personal playground. His days were often filled with bike riding around the town and playing video games on his Game Boy Color. He also used this time to survey the unknown environment around him. He wanted to become familiar with Poussin, to understand the area that he woke up to every day. 
even if he was sure they'd be leaving soon. Like the French, he would use his bicycle as his means of transportation. He exiled a grand sigh after riding around all day, every day. His shirt would get so damp it became a whole shade darker. From his apartment, he cycled and cycled and cycled, often finding himself at the town's only bakery. The cycling exhausted him. He felt the muscles in his legs stretching, as if they were not satisfied with the dimensions his child-sized body provided them. He followed the car rides in Plymouth, Massachusetts. To get to one of the bakeries there, his mother would take them via car. He would sit in the back seat. He would stick his head out from the window. As the car accelerated, the wind would blow the strands of his curly hair in every direction possible. He loved riding in the car in Massachusetts. In Poussin, there were few cars for him to stick his head out. Everyone biked or walked there. From a carefree passenger to a very tired driver, Christian shifted. He was changing, growing, in a place with which he was unfamiliar. When are we going home? He wondered. But eventually, he stopped asking. Set. It was finally the first day of school in France. His mother had enrolled her very nervous, very out-of-school practice son into the academy, Espace Leopold Seder Singar. He didn't want to go, but he did. He sat at his desk with his hands gripped tight around the metal bars round about his knees. A class of students conversing in French surrounded him. The students would steal glances in his direction, and some would even whisper in a hushed tone. Lui, c'est l'Américain. L'Américain. Christian spoke little French, but caught the word American. He was the only American student in his class, and he wondered if they were talking about him. They probably were, he knew while staring at the floor, pretending not to hear. He thought things couldn't get much worse, but then his teacher started giving the day's first lesson. Prenez vos agendas, s'il vous plaît. Demain, il y aura un contrôle sur les quatre derniers chapitres depuis la Deuxième Guerre mondiale. Faites attention à ne pas oublier le chapitre sur la création de l'ONU, le contrôle sur la coefficient 2 sur vos bulletins de notes et sera ainsi le dernier contrôle avant la salle des classes. Vous aurez deux heures à le compléter et personne ne sort avant la sonnerie. He understood nothing. Sweat started pulling under his arms. He could hear his heart beating in his ears. He was one of the most intelligent students of the class in Massachusetts, but here, he knew nothing. He felt dumb, confused, stuck. This did not sit well with him. Embarrassed but determined, he would shyly raise his pale hand. Je comprends pas. He asked, hoping she would at least see that he knew how to ask her to explain again. She was not impressed, he saw, as she tried her hardest to max her irritation with the foreign student. Vous ne comprenez pas parce que vous ne comprenez pas le français. The class all shared the same sneaker, while Christian's face turned red. His feelings of embarrassment showed themselves through the flushed pigment under his white skin. She continued to stare at him. He would learn that she'd said, you will need a tutor outside of class to learn the material. He never needed a tutor at home, he wished everyone knew. At night, the tears that flowed from his olive-green eyes drenched his pillow. He soon realized that he couldn't fall asleep without them. 
He also realized that home was becoming a fleeting memory. 8. Day by day, the foreign words seemed less and less foreign. They fell from his mouth with ease even. And as he became more conversational, he started to embrace French culture. Le Dimanche no longer meant just a Sunday. It meant to him the same it would mean to a French native. Narian Fier, a lazy Sunday afternoon. Like everyone else, he would join the line at the vineyard with empty water jugs in each hand. In them, he'd bring home red wine for 40 cents a gallon and drink it with his friends while eating soft mozzarella and wedge-cut tomatoes. This was normal now. It was fun, even. He made friends, began to talk to his sister in French instead of English, and got good grades. Neuf. It took nine years to return to Massachusetts. When he finally returned, things looked the same. Sort of. The siding of the houses all still exhibited monotone colors. The nearby playground still hung his favorite swing, where he once believed it would help him reach the sky. He reunited with his childhood friends. They were relieved to know that he was doing okay. He was happy they even remembered him. And, coincidentally, neither him nor his friend Christian lost interest in Pokemon. Their long-anticipated Pokemon battle was finally resumed. I'm finally here, he thought. Home. But here didn't seem home to him anymore. He tried to be happy back in Massachusetts, and he was happy. He really was, when he wasn't thinking about home, about going back to France. What an interesting turn of events captured in this story. Um, wow, this is clearly not the classic you know, vacation or travel narrative, to say the least. So thank you so much to our author, Lashana Craig. Today, we're lucky enough to have both Lashana and Christian here with us. Lashana and Christian, thank you for being here tonight. And it's really great to have you both in the studio. Thank you. It's a flatter and an honor to be here with you guys tonight. <laughs> thank you very much for having me tonight. <laughs> it's a pleasure, guys, really. What a story. You know, besides the content being incredibly interesting, it's really worth mentioning here that the story is particularly noteworthy. Because this is the first Life Out Loud piece that is not a direct personal narrative. It's not told mainly via first-person perspective. Lashana, you do have some personal narrative at the beginning, right? Like, in this part, setting up of how you know Christian and, like, clarify, like, who is actually telling this story and, and what this story is about. But essentially, this piece is about someone else. A piece in which the author tells someone else's story if she were there herself, which is really quite amazing how you do it. And it certainly isn't an easy thing whatsoever. Not at all. Can you tell us a little bit about the process? What's it like to so intimately tell someone else's story, to tell it as though you, the narrator, were there through the entire thing? And you voice it so clearly. Tell us a little bit about that process. What was it like? Telling someone else's story is different in the sense that you it's obligatory that you separate yourself from when you're writing the story 
the only way you can probably express yourself, and I realized this when I wrote Christian's story, is the manner of language and the words you use. The content, that's not that's not mine at all. That's someone else's, and in this case, it was Christian's. So it's kind of difficult in the sense that you have to know that you're stepping back and that you're not going to be part of this story. And once you kind of grasp that, I think it becomes easier because I found other ways to portray my writing style. And mm-hmm. I did that through like vocabulary, how to, I wrote things like description, but the content, I just did not want to be involved because literary journalism, that's, you're writing through the lens of someone else. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, it's, it's easy, but that's the hardest, it, the first step is the hardest step. Wow. That is so incredibly hard to do. I know that personally, because we both had the same professor, Professor Madrazo for creative nonfiction. And personally, <laughs> I didn't hand in my, that essay, <laughs> the, the literary oh journalism God. essay, because it was it, it's so difficult to kind of, one, interview that person enough to know their story so well, and two, to get it so that it is them but through your own kind of lens and through your own kind of style and I think you did that so artfully and so so well here well some of the techniques and strategies that you used are directly part of that you know subgenre called literary journalism in creative nonfiction, and you used a lot of secondary research in your factual representation of the French towns and of course primary research being like you know interviewing Christian and follow-up interviews etc etc um, this genre of literary journalism, as some of our listeners may or may not know, is known for combining factual reporting with narrative literary te- techniques and style strategies that are often employed when writing fiction. So you get to kind of play around with scenes and you get to play around with your own style while maintaining that same kind of, you know, factual information that tells mm-hmm. another person's story. So how was this process for you? Like, I imagine that it was so much interviewing. Like, I was telling Karina earlier that I had this image of, like, you writing and then Christian, like, looking over your shoulder and, like, <laughs> like no, change that, change that. So h- how was that process like and how much of that, you know, went into this when you were writing? Did that actually take place? Yeah, Christian? did that actually take yeah. place? Christian, did you like look over her paper or her, mm-hmm. her writing and like, oh, correct that, hon? <laughs> you know, maybe it's I wouldn't point. say that. I wouldn't <laughs> say that. Yeah. There was a lot of interviewing with this piece. Um, mm-hmm. And more than one time I interviewed him. Um, one interview would not suffice. I had to probably do it maybe three, four times. And it was specific interviewing. It wasn't like, at first he told me his story. But I had to keep pressing for the details, mm-hmm. and I would I would get to the point being annoying almost like asking <laughs> like how old were you, what age, you know, kind of thing. So I had to be very persistent. But once I interviewed him enough, and I wore him out with that, um, I pretty much just took it on my own, and then I wrote. And what's interesting with I learned with this genre, this subgenre, is that you have to fill in the gaps. But it has to be, obviously, the gaps are the way you're going to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So you're not changing the content, but you are using a little bit of imagination. And I think 
probably one of the scenes I did use imagination was that whole scene where he was with the bicycle and the bakery mm. and like the imagery with the muscles. I use my imagination for that because I imagine that if you're riding through the town going to the only bakery, you're going to be sweaty and your shirt's going to be drenched and, you know, you're, you're growing and your muscles are might strain. So the content wise, gathering that from Christian was hard in the sense that I had to know what I was asking for. When you interview people, I learned you can't expect them to just ramble on and on and on about their story. You have to, you have to, exactly, you have to be specific. You have to ask what, what year, where was this? Can you give me the town, please? Can you spell the town? How do you pronounce the town? How do you pronounce the town? That came up a lot. So, and then once, once I got all that information, I kind of just took it into, because you're the, you're the writer. So you have to write it Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You can get all the information you want, but at the end, it's you putting your pen on that paper and you have to orchestrate it the way you need to to communicate to the world the story yeah you did such a fantastic job might i say in, in doing that yes um you, you so beautifully tied in like your imagination with still holding up the integrity of of what his truth was um but with that being said christian how was this process for you? I mean, we have we we have her over here saying that like she asked you endlessly questions. Mm-hmm. Like, did this process seem endless, tire tireless? In other words, I think the way it <laughs> happened was when we started dating. I really didn't get into it that much, but as we developed our relationship, um, you know, and through certain events like meeting my family and you know seeing the way I. Uh, seeing the way I am with my sister, mm-hmm. she would, you know, ask little tidbits here and there. And, you know, she would uh, one day ask me if I was uh, interested in doing an interview for her. So I think at some point um, I did agree to sit down and ramble on and on. <laughs> but I, I also think a lot of it was learning through us being together and her experience mm-hmm. with me and my sister and just seeing just seeing my culture and my family's culture learning a lot through that as well. So I don't think it was just a a one-time sit-down interview, but more getting to know each other over time that really helped. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's, it's I'm so sorry. You can see it, it, though. You can really see it between the two of them, just the way that yeah. you guys sort of flow so well when mm-hmm. even answering our questions. It's it's really nice. <laughs> it is really nice. And it, it's so good to have that. Um, that kind of leniency and that free flowingness when you are writing in literary journalism to kind of have that person be so close to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's like the best because you could just like bother them all day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Also, I, I would like to add that when it's someone so close to you, you want to make sure that the story's good too. Yes. No, exactly. yeah. Absolutely. That Absolutely. was actually a really big thing for me when reading yeah. your piece. Like, how were you able to separate your own biases, like of of hearing the story and not necessarily interjecting yourself into this mm-hmm. piece? And like, the whole like, it just goes back to the I guess the question that we answered earlier, like how you just kept his truth, his truth, and. Yeah added your own little bit tidbits here of creativity rather than really altering I think yeah I think knowing from the the beginning that this isn't going to be my story Mm -hmm. kind of set the tone that throughout when I'm writing it no it's not gonna be my story the introduction I put I I put that 
as you said earlier, to establish the setting and mm-hmm. why the story is being told. But I also did that um, basically to have a little bit of voice and that those those paragraphs were my voice. And then after that, when it started the, the numbers in French, I decided to just step back. And I was just I was content with that because I got my piece. I established it at the same time. Yeah. And then after that, it was it was just a Christian story. <laughs> It allows it to flow so well, That's though, incorporating in- all of those elements. For real. That's so <laughs> exciting. Oh, my goodness. So a big part of literary journalism is to give a voice to unheard stories or ones that aren't told often and aren't necessarily, you know, what we consider news. You know, they're a little bit more insignificant, but so significant because it is lives that are so important and that are so impactful. The genre is also really well known for digging deeper into tangential stories. Those on the sidelines of main events or those belonging to people on the periphery. What made you feel that this was an important story to tell, that everyone had to hear a Christian story in France? I would I would say that when he told me his story, and like he said earlier, it wasn't something I learned all in the interview. I did know like pieces of it. The interviews allowed me to know the details and the behind the scenes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, his story, I wanted to write about it because when he told me, when I learned that he was in France for nine years, I was my instant thought that popped in my head was like, this is not normal. <laughs> like, there has to be a story behind it. And there is a story behind it. And I think it was just kind of like sometimes when you hear stuff and you immediately want to know more. I felt like that Mm -hmm. was when this case, when I asked him and it was like, I wanted to know more. So when maybe other people would, too. Yeah, of course. That's pretty much why. (laughs) No, I'm glad. I'm really glad that this was written because I I needed Mm -hmm. to know this story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I I also think... um, there was a sense of isolation at some point in my travels in France. And like you said, giving a voice to some of the uh, more tangential tangential stories uh, sort of allows for me to have a voice for my story that sometimes I feel um, I have to either keep to myself or would maybe be embarrassed to talk mm-hmm. about on my own. So to have someone write about it for me was was very helpful and i think in my personal life um gave me maybe a little bit more confidence talking about it the fact that she was showing interest in writing a piece about it motivated me to tell her more about the story itself mm. oh. that's so cute <laughs> <laughs> we're getting all the feels in here yes, right we now are getting oh my god and christian you can't see right now, but Christian is trying to hide. I'm failing. <laughs> so at the end of the story, you make a fabulous nod to the sort of permanent changes a move or experiencing a time like this in someone's life can make. When you note that Christian finally makes it back to the United States, he suddenly realizes that he exists between two worlds, so to speak. When home, he realizes that he actually misses certain things about his other home. So I guess my, my question is, Christian, how did, your, how did this experience shape your perspective of, of home? 
Like, what does home mean to you now, like present day? Where Where is home? Is the answer cheesy? Mm, not cheesy. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, good. I think throughout the years, home became from what I believed as a kid to be where you grew up or where you were born, where you went to school, who you knew, um, became more of who I am and what I want to achieve in life and what I enjoy. So to me, home is many different places and many different people and many different experiences. Home to me can be the house that I grew up in when I was a kid before we moved. It can be uh, maybe a special place in France where I used to hang out with some friends. It can be uh, maybe here in New York City or on Long Island where I met Lashana. Uh, it can be many different places. And I, I think to me, home, now that I've traveled and, of course, you know, um, beyond France, I've traveled to several different countries. So I, th I think home is where I am at the present moment of time. Um, really so long as I'm happy um, I think home to me is being with the people that I care about so wherever that is 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 pretty much home to me having moved around so much uh, it's hard to really pinpoint it into one yeah. into one uh, place on the map I think it's good to have a traveling home like a like a hermit crab but for your feelings because <laughs> 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 But 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 yeah, because then then there's no loss of home because it's always with you and it's always with people that are near you that are destined to kind of be around you. <laughs> so that that that's something that's really really like beautiful to hear, and it's good to see that there's been a change since since this story where you seem to have a, a lot of difficulties with that concept. So that's really really nice. So I guess the only question that's left is Lashana. Do you have any advice regarding literary journalism um, and that genre to other people who want to tell other people's stories? Maybe I can turn in that essay if Madrazo lets me. Sure. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Um, I'll provide, actually, to be more insightful, I'll provide um, advice for both ends. Um, I think I'll start off with someone that would be interviewed. I think... From the other end, it's encouraged because it gives you voice. And even if you don't, maybe you're shy about letting other people know something, mm -hmm. maybe sharing your story may connect with someone. And I think that's really important because it, in a world where there's social media and there's so many obvious ways of connecting with people, I think what's what's really romantic about writing and creative nonfiction is that you read it and it changes you mm. not just for that moment you read it but also it could be for months years and it, it may be resonant within the back of your mind but it's still there so always like don't be afraid to share it it may be painful but I think if you can make someone's day or if they can connect more I think it's worth it because you don't know who you could be changing, who you could be making feel better, making them feel more sure of themselves. I think it's totally worth it. And for the other end with the interviewer or the writer, I think it's um 
I actually really like the subgenre because it's not easy to do in the sense that you have to acknowledge that, like I said earlier, it is not about a story about you. Mm. The most you can do is put your artistic writing ability and how you're going to phrase things and how you're going to word things. But the content is something that it's sacred. You shouldn't really be changing Mm -hmm. the dates. You shouldn't be changing the times it or how someone said it it should be said as it was because someone is entrusting that story to you you should take good care of it Mm -hmm. so i think you have to if you're going into this genre you have to treat it with care and don't brush it off lightly you have to do a lot of research you have to interview the person more than once but it's worth it because at the end of the day, you can present that story back to the person and be like, here's your story. Are you happy with it? Yeah. And hopefully they should be happy with it. Mm-hmm. So I... If it's really <laughs> right, like yes. the yes. was. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think it's something that it's kind of, it goes two ways. You're healing, you may be healing that person and you don't even realize it. And you're showing some, you're showing the world um, a story and, you know, people can connect. My yeah. goodness, I I don't think I've ever heard it quite put that way, mm-hmm. and it was wonderful. So I guess, as much as I'd hate to say goodbye, <laughs> thank you, you guys, yes, so yes. much, oh, Lashana no and Christian. No problem. Um, it was so wonderful much. speaking with you guys this Likewise. evening, and thank the fact that us. you know you allowed us to share your story is amazing. Keep writing, okay? Yes, please. <laughs> oh my God. Well, that's all we have for tonight. We just want to say thank you to our writers today, to our sound engineers, our editors, our episode writers, our website developer, everyone. There's a lot of people behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud, and you can find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or tune in at Radio 568. Or newly, you can now download us on iTunes and subscribe as well. Just be sure to search Life Out Loud Podcast instead of Life Out Loud. And hold on just one second. Before we say goodnight, finally, uh, we have to give a very special thank you to our audience for joining us, too. We hope you loved these stories as much as we do. And it was a joy to bring them to you. So I guess Karen and I can both say goodnight. Goodnight. (laughs) That was cute. So cute. (laughs)